Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the fourth chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, page 628 in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. Um, as many of you know, we've been working through Daniel verse by verse some um, eight or nine weeks ago. And so the reason why we're here this morning in chapter four is this is where we should be. We, we won't finish the chapter, but um, we'll get a good portion of it um, completed. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the vision I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree. And trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let, let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Beginning in verse 19, Daniel begins to interpret the dream. Verse 24, after the interpretation, Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar writes, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. 
You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives to them anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. May God give us understanding of it. And please, if you would, let's pray together. Father, make this book live in us. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. And please make this book live in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Tonight, on the Lord's evening, we have been hearing the opportunity has been arranged for us to return together here as God's people and to pray as we've been commanded taking into account our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted simply because they are confessing and they believe that Jesus suffered and died on the cross for their sins and that God raised him up and this same Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. So tonight we'll be focusing on the needs of the persecuted around the world. That's globally. And here we are just a few days away nationally and locally where we will soon, if we haven't already, we will soon be choosing our late leaders and particularly our new president. And wouldn't you know it, here we are in chapter 4 of Daniel where we will learn from the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar that God is sovereign over the rise and fall of every earthly kingdom. And God puts in those places of authority whomever he chooses. It's said four times in this chapter. Verse 17, if your Bible's open. The most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 25, the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 32, the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 35, by implication, he, the most high God, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of earth. No one can hold hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So not only is God sovereign over the rise and fall of every earthly kingdom, he is also sovereign over the affairs of individuals in those kingdom, whether they are protected or whether they are persecuted. Consequently, no one in any kingdom holding to positions of authority, of power, of any kind, whether they have fought their way, schemed their way, or were elected in those positions, whether they belong to God or not, no one is ultimately there because they willed themselves to the post or they worked so hard to achieve it. Not ultimately. No, you see, the Bible is very clear. No one has what they have. No one is able to do what they do apart from God, putting them in their place, giving them what they have and giving them what they need to fulfill his purposes. Therefore, all the affairs of time and seeming chance, ordinary or extraordinary, are actually ordered by and allowed by God as he works out all his sovereign purposes. But not only this, in God's sovereign power, he is surely able to transform the life of even those in their seats of power who have opposed him and who have 
tyrannized his people. And this is what is happening in Daniel chapter 4. And this has happened in history and it will happen in future. Because God's people, and this should be good news, God's people would surely desire that their leaders and their persecutors, that they would come to know and love the God they love and serve, right? Any Christian worth their salt taking hits for Jesus would want their persecutors to come to know and love the God they know and love. So you see, loved ones, when we look at Daniel chapter 4, we shouldn't see this as, oh, you know, God's putting down the hammer, proud people, beware. You know, too much of that stuff feeds only our flesh. Uh, go get them, God. Put them in their place. Yeah. As if we have ever known, never known moments of pride ourselves. However, we should see that this chapter 4 is the personal testimony of a king who wished to bless the world because the Most High God worked it out so that the king would come to know and be in relationship with the Most High God. Because remember the final words on the pages of Scripture of King Nebuchadnezzar, and you'll see them at the end of the chapter, is that he is giving praise and blessing and adoration to God. And he is declaring truth about God. That's how Nebuchadnezzar exits the stage. King Solomon doesn't even exit the world this way. So loved ones, think with me. Daniel chapter 4 is a great chapter to the witness of one faithful person, Daniel, working in a secular job over the course of many, many years who has an opportunity to speak to and serve his boss who happens to be the, the, the most powerful person in the world and is received in a way that brings glory to God, compassion on the souls of men, even the whole wide world. And it's also a great chapter to the witness of how God can be so incredibly merciful and turn around the pride-filled life of just one king in order that this one king will write a letter and bear witness to the whole world that the Most High God rules the world and verse 37, all his ways are right and just and he is to be praised, exalted, and glorified. How about that? Think, think, think. One guy, one king. And that's all that is needed to bear witness to the world. And in fact, his letter keeps bearing witness to the world as Bibles are being passed out. Okay, that's good for them. But how about you and I? You and I who wake up every day and we, most of us go to work. We do our duty. We do our routines day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Maybe wondering, okay, where's my part in this, in this plan? And what you would say to yourselves is this. Daniel, in all of Daniel's days, has determined that there's essentially just nine events in the close to his 70 years of service to pagan kings that he deems worthy of putting down in the public record. Nine big days, if you would, over 70-year run where he says, these are my important days. These are the days of God faithfully at work and the fruit of what he was doing. And I think that's important to remember. It's important to remember because life can be so daily, 
right? Life can just be so routine. That shouldn't shock us. That shouldn't disappoint us. But it should teach us that these routine days, they're preparation for the big days. And Daniel had nine of them. Okay, now this letter essentially begins with a doxology. A hymn of praise to God. So Nebuchadnezzar ends this letter and begins this letter with songs about God. Which is a sign in the New Testament of having the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. That's Colossians 3, Ephesians 5. Uh, sing Christian songs and hymns and spiritual songs, Paul says. Because this is an activity of the Spirit. This is what it means to be spirit-filled. This is why singing like this is so important. Secondly, you'll notice if your Bible is open that he is writing to, he's speaking to the whole wide world. Verse 1, to the people, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. So in contemporary terms, he would have been calling a press conference. And all the world's press would be there. Now, now you know if I called the press conference, no one would be there. My wife wouldn't be there. I'm pretty sure my mother wouldn't be there. Not so with the king. He's a great big king with a great big kingdom. His kingdom stretches from the Persian Gulf in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. It stretches from Egypt to the south to Iran in the north. So when he says what he says in verse 1, he knows that there's this huge mass of land and people in that land in the Middle East which are under his rule. Finally, I want you to notice that in verse 2, the letter is good news. It's a good letter for the world. So look at your Bibles. Hey, everybody. Verse 1. May you prosper greatly. I mean, what a way to start a letter. Those of you who like to write letters, maybe that's the way we would start to write them. Now, I say this because he could have said, hey, everybody, your taxes to the empire are going to be doubled. Or he could have said, your tribute to me is going to be doubled. Or he could have said, I need more of your men in my army, which would have been routine when these kinds of letters went out to the world. But here he writes, it is my pleasure. Do you see that in verse 2? It is my pleasure to tell you about these signs and wonders about that the Most High God has performed for me. It's a testimony, you guys. It's good news. I mean, think. Seven years living and thinking about an animal is God's discipline to me so that all the world can know. Verse 37, do you see it there? All the world can know that he, is, he does right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. James 1 Counted all joy, my brothers and sisters, when, when you are taking a hammering for the truth. Hebrews 10, when you are disciplined by God, this is a sign of God's love, wonderful, good news, testimony. And you can see he moves from first person singular to the third person singular. Verse 3, how great are his signs. God, how great are his wonders, his kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. If you're in the home groups and you're working through Ephesians 1, how great was Ephesians 1 verses 3 to about 14 when it talks about the gospel. He did this. God did this. God did this. God chose you. God predestined you. God gave you the righteousness of Jesus. God, 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 God. It's the same here. He, 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 he. 
And so we find out that Nebuchadnezzar has learned that God is sovereign. And he is responding to God's sovereignty after God disciplined him, not with rebellion, but with humility. Which in many ways is a litmus test, isn't it? Because there is probably no truth about God which is more likely to evoke either humility or rebellion and anger than God's sovereignty. Let me say that again. There's probably no truth about God which is more likely to evoke either humility or rebellion and anger than his sovereignty. So so test yourself in this. Is your response to God's sovereignty something which humbles you as you begin to realize that all that you are and all that you have As you think about the people who hold public office, they are there on account of God. And even as you see your life, now be honest here, even as you see your life right now, just as it is, you bow down in humility of spirit and say, oh, Father, thank you. And I trust you, God. I trust you. Do you do that? Or do you find yourself in your mind standing nose to nose with God and saying, no, no, not for a second. And by the way, I didn't sign up for this. And you didn't do this. And why is this happening to me? And why is this going on? You see, the sovereignty of God is in many ways a litmus test of who we really are before him. Right? Not this really are. This really are. Loved ones, we need to let this king teach us. All of God's works are right and all of his ways are just. And no one can say to God, verse 35, what have you done? What have you done? That's kind of a summary of the opening verses. Now to the king and he gives a testimony. So the testimony has a context. The scene is taking place some 25 to 30 years after the fiery furnace of chapter 3. Daniel is essentially a middle-aged man. Nebuchadnezzar in many year, is many years past middle age. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world's first world empire, has apparently been on a roll for decades. Do you see that in verse 4? I was at home in my palace, and I was living the dream, right? I was contented and prosperous. In other words, I was at ease. He, he was apparently in his golden years of life. And his life was such that no one could tell him what to do or when to do it or how to do it. He could take off his work boots and put on his slippers, whatever he decided to. And apparently in his mind, verse 30, his super duper plan for world dominance and a life of ease has paid off in spades. The world is conquered. His life is at ease. And he literally says, this is verse 4, he is growing green, lush like a tree. It's a play on words with the dream. Because a literal translation of the word prosper in verse 4 is lush and green. In other words, he's got it going on. He's got it going on, but then he goes to sleep. To sleep, perchance to dream. And along comes a dream that verse 5 makes him afraid. Now, are you stunned by this? Are you stunned that all it took for him to become afraid in his position and his prosperity and his authority, all it took to rock his world is a dream? Or is it that it's been so long, so long that he had known any fear of any kind that the dream catches him off guard? However, dreams in the Bible bring anxiety 
to many people, especially to wicked people. Pharaoh was in panic by a dream. Herod was in a panic by a dream. Pilate was in panic by a dream. And it appears now that Nebuchadnezzar is in panic by a dream. And the dream has so blasted him that he becomes, verse 5, terrified. Now, do you see the picture? He's at ease. And while he's prospering, into his life comes this. Loved ones, in the same way something could, could come to each of us who are at ease, which will make us afraid and will send us to panic. A phone call, an email, a blood test, bad news. It makes me think of a person Jesus spoke of in Luke's gospel who was at ease and things were going super well. His business model was paying off big time and he thought, jeepers creepers, things are so well, I'll expand my warehouse. I'll fortify my holdings. And then he said, I will take my ease. But Jesus responds to that earthbound logic by saying, what a foolish thing to do. Don't you realize that this night your life of ease is going to end and your soul is required of you? As if, and listen carefully, especially if you're a young person, as if somehow prosperity is a soft enough bed on, one, on which one could lay down and find peace. As if somehow ease and comfort is the answer that we've been looking for. And is a wide enough blanket which we can find security and peace. Loved ones, we don't need chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Not if we're honest. We don't need that to point, to those verses to point this out. We just need to exist. We just need to look around. We just need to be honest with each other. And to see the truth. To see that that is the human condition. Outside of Jesus Christ. So the dream brings alarm. And he does what we've come to know him to do a whole lot. He issues a command. He's very good at that. Verse 6. Call in the same old guys in here who have been consistently, magnificently, reliably, absolutely useless. Right? You see them there? The magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. I'm going to call them the Marx brothers. They just come barreling in. It's a folly of human wisdom. They can help no one. They all line up. There they are. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) that's Scrooge, right? Almost. The king, how's that? The king goes to the same old well. Most of you know this quote, Albert Einstein, insanity. He's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And people do that all the time. We do that all the time. We keep going back to the same old well. Something difficult happens and instead of running to Jesus, we go back to the same old things. Why do we do this? These guys can't help at all. There are no answers there. Daniel then, verse 8, comes into the king's presence. It's it's almost like if it was a movie, here comes Daniel, rushes into the scene. Verse 9, the king is amped up because Daniel, that's his answer, man, right? Daniel has all the answers, but in chapter 2, Daniel said, listen, king, I can't interpret dreams. It was the God of heaven who, who could alone do this. Still, you'll notice Nebuchadnezzar tells of Daniel's Babylonian name in verse 8. He, he's called Belshazzar. Belshazzar, Bel, the God of Babylon and the God of Nebuchadnezzar at this time. 
And so what I want you to see is at this point in the story, the king is a pagan king. He's a pagan idol worshiper. And Daniel, you'll see there, doesn't have any problem replying to his name. So, so think, Daniel is okay being named after and functioning under the name of a false idol. God's man is okay with that. And apparently up until this point of the story, with all the miraculous signs that the king saw with his eyes and the things that he heard with his ears and even the influence of Daniel, right? Some 30 years now. At this point in the story, the king's still a pagan king. 30 years hanging around Daniel, he's still a pagan. Hmm. What's the point? Some water, some plant, but God's the only one that makes things grow. Jonah. Lord, salvation belongs to the Lord. No matter how great Daniel was, Daniel could not change the heart of this king. Hmm. However, Nebuchadnezzar does, does say something unique about Daniel in verse 8 again when he says the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Elohim would be the Hebrew translation of that word in Aramaic. And I tell you this because Elohim is the word used of God, especially in Genesis. And it's plural. Why a plural word in Hebrew translated here in, in Aramaic, plural. Why a plural word, word for God? Because, well, God is triune. He, he's God in three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, Blessed Trinity. And so Nebuchadnezzar understands that this, this God isn't the normal pagan God. This God is Elohim. So this is redemptive history. This is, how, this is how Nebuchadnezzar is working it out in his mind. He gives God, Elohim, a plural name. And here's the payoff. Because this is the complete opposite as, as Nebu- or Daniel is able to give him the dream. It's the complete opposite of the king's best and brightest who only have the best of earthly wisdom at their disposal. That's important. Verse 9, I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods, Elohim, is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. In other words, you have an answer from God for everything, Daniel. There's no mystery to you, Daniel. So let's remind ourselves here. We've been saying this often. We need to repeat it. Nebuchadnezzar here, He represents man as man apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Spirit of God and dwelling in him. And so there's no answers and there's no hope. So they're all clueless in the things which matter most. And Daniel represents Jesus Christ. And what was said about Jesus Christ? Well, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 32, the people were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Matthew 13, 54, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the Bible in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and this miraculous power, they asked? And what was said of people who were in Christ? For example, Stephen in Acts 6, they, his persecutors, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And here is Daniel. Daniel, you have the spirit of Elohim in you. Now, what is this? This is spiritual power rooted in spiritual truth from the spirit of the triune God, which will always run counter to human wisdom. And it's in Daniel, it's in Christ, 
It's in Stephen. And yes, loved ones, if you or I are in Christ this morning, this same spirit dwells in us. So let me say it like that. That's true. And if you believe that, then get on that horse and ride it. Do you understand what I mean? This is who we are in Christ. And you and I, as humble as we may be, we have the answers that the world is looking for. The world will set up committees and councils and summits and conferences and so on. But here we see that the answer to every question that the world can ask is all wrapped up in Jesus. Now, do you believe that? You know, when I say things like, the world needs Christ, is that just cliche to you? Does it sound corny? You know, that's what you're supposed to say. You're buying the box. You should say things like, the world needs Christ. Do you know my king? Do you know my Christ? Here's my list. Do you know how precious he is to me? How he transformed my life? Oh, he forgave me of my sins. How he forgives me of my sins. Sins I've committed a thousand times. He provides for me daily. He guides me daily. He gives me power and ability that I do not have in myself daily. And he promises me. He promises me the things I do not deserve. But that I long for. That in Christ, I will now or one day... I will have him and them. That's the answer. Jesus. Don't let pride get in the way. The dream, get to the dream. Okay, verse 10. I look and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land and it was, its height was enormous. Verse 11, it touched the heavens. This is similar to Genesis 11, right? The Tower of Babel. And all its apparent strength and significance. And the tree is visible to the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful. You see this abundant fruit and food for all and so on. Every creature was fed. It's a beautiful picture. It was a picture of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. A kingdom which stretched what? From shore to shore. Everyone knew of it. And he, the the great king, was essentially the sustainer and the provider of the world. Okay, good. And even I could come to a conclusion that the tree is Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, that's pretty easy to get to, especially in verse 13 and following. But not even the the counsel of the king could tell him that. And so he's lying in bed in this vision. And he saw this holy one, a messenger. And the messenger comes down from heaven. And a loud voice, he says, cut down the tree. Trim out its branches. Strip its leaves. Scatter its fruit. It's a very brutal scene. So this massive tree, which everyone and everything is sustained from, is cut down. But the stump, verse 15, and its roots remain. And they're bound, as you see there, with iron and bronze. And it has to remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. And then it says, let him. Okay, now we know the tree is a him. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind. Be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. So the tree is a him. It's the king. He's not going to die. He will live. But he will live and think like an animal for seven seasons. 
By the way, like, lycanthropy is what is happening here. Probably that is having the mind of a beast. So it's a real thing. Because he was prideful. And he rejected at this time the sovereignty of God. Verse 17, the decision that is announced by the messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. And there you have it. This is the intent of the dream. This is what God wants everyone to know. It is to bring those who have forgotten their dependence on God to see their need of God and how great God is. Again, this is what God wants us to know. Those who have forgotten their dependence on God to see their need of God and how great God is. Now, we need to finish. The dream, the dream breaks into the silence of this man and in this enviable position from the human perspective that he's in. And in the darkness of night, in the privacy of his own bedroom, he knows, he knows that things are not as they appear to be. And he has a sneaking suspicion that when this dream is explained to him, he's going to be that tree. And part of that story is that he's going to be cut down. So let me end where I began. No truth about God, which is likely to evoke either humility or rebellion than the fact that God is sovereign over the affairs of this world. And so I suspect when Wednesday morning rolls around, if it does, and if we know who our leaders will be, our response to God's selection, humility or rebellion. And also, Look how ruthless God determined to be to save this man from his sin-filled pride. And the counsel of God determined that this is what he needed in his unbelief so that he can know the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. And actually the word in verse 17 is mankind, the lowliest of men or women. Let's pray.